Chapter 20 The Immortal In the collapsed mine, as Rupert Fuchs and his German sappers tried desperately to save themselves from drowning in the bone-dry underground, the mental wheels had begun to come off. For their leader, Captain Paul Becker, this was unacceptable. Paul descended from a long line of Prussian knights. He believed in duty, honor, God, country, and himself. Not necessarily in that order. His own father had led a battalion in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, crushing the French resistance and seizing the Alsace-Lorraine from the feckless Frenchmen. Paul knew that he would follow in his father's footsteps from the time he could walk. He joined the military in peacetime as soon as he came of age and worked his way up through the ranks. When the war broke out, he led his company through Belgium with the first wave. It had gone easy those first weeks. They had few losses in Flanders and essentially had their way with any guerrilla fighters that tried to slow them. They shoved in the bayonet and found that resistance was nominal at best, so they kept right on stabbing. The Schlieffen plan called for jamming the bayonet home by encircling and taking Paris, forcing a surrender by the French within a month, then turning their bayonets back toward where the Tsar and his troops had mobilized and were preparing to cross onto sacred German soil. Unfortunately, the best-laid schemes of mice and of men go oft ugly. The stiff upper-lipped British arrived at the party, dug in their heels, and ground the gears of the German war machine to a ruinous standstill. Everyone sent in their sappers and began a war of trench raids and trench rot, artillery shells and dysentery hells. All lost their minds, even the ones who did not realize it. Soldiers dealt with the strain of war in different ways. Some men, whose bravery Paul never would have questioned at the outset, became shirkers as things progressed. Watching men fall around you every day was enough to clear you of any ideas about immortality very quickly. And once the belief that death was something that happened to lesser men than you was proven a false premise, the reasonable thing to do was to break down or create opportunities for survival by avoiding danger. Paul had broken in his own unique way. After one incredibly bloody show, an attack on the French that had left the majority of his company wounded or dead, he had decided he could not be killed. He had walked out of the French trenches unscathed, not a nick, not a scratch. Part of him knew this immortality was a lie, but somewhere in his sickness, he had certainty that if he released this newfound belief, he would be unable to continue soldiering, and that was something that he would not accept. Dishonoring his father and family would be tantamount to death. So he chose to grasp onto this fiction with zealous faith and certainty. He did not make mention of his immortality to his superiors or his subordinates. He knew they would realize he had lost his mind if he uttered it aloud. But he also knew that it was the one piece of flotsam keeping him from drowning in the deep, dark ocean of blood he was skinny-dipping in. After a long, violent stretch spent facing the British and their Gurkha warriors, Paul Becker's company had been given a brief respite. They were sent south to hold the line at a quiet sector. 
the orders came as a surprise to Paul, and it was much to the dismay of the Saxon infantrymen who had held that quiet section of trenches for a solid year that they were to be uprooted from their spot. When Paul spoke to their lieutenant colonel, he understood why. The Saxon lieutenant colonel welcomed him into his dugout with a smile and a warm handshake. They had a schnapps together and talked about their respective families. Despite the pleasantries, Paul could tell that the lieutenant colonel wanted to tell him something more and was looking for a way to do it. Finally, he got around to the point. Captain, come along with me. I'd like to show you something. Paul followed the lieutenant colonel out of the dugout through the fire bays to the front line. The construction of the fortifications was excellent, but there was something amiss. The trenches and sandbags, parapets and barbed wire, were immaculate, in the sense that they had never been touched by shrapnel or gunfire. When they arrived at the front line itself, Paul was in for another surprise. No man's land could as easily have been a pre-war horse pasture. Thick green grass and wild flowers made up every inch of a nearly craterless field. Its verdure stretched 300 yards west to the French barbed wire and sandbags. The Saxon lieutenant colonel climbed an assault ladder and stood on the parapet, clearly in sight of any snipers or riflemen that the French had watching from their fortifications. He turned back toward Paul and spoke quietly. You see, Captain, we have created a unique sort of situation here. Perhaps now you can understand why my men are unhappy at the prospect of leaving. Paul smiled. Please explain yourself, Lieutenant Colonel. It was not a particularly cold smile, per se, but it gave the Lieutenant Colonel pause. He took a moment, organizing his thoughts, before he jumped in with both feet. Then we arrived at the sector a year ago, on the first morning, after my artillery battery finished its barrage, the commander of the French forces walked across no man's land under a white flag. I thought, this is insane. Is he truly going to surrender to me after one shelling? But it was not surrender that he had in mind. The lieutenant colonel paused and smoothed his moustache. Paul nodded. Go on. He had a proposal for a sort of separate peace between our companies. Each morning they would fire five shells at us, ranging the targets behind our front lines. In return, we would fire five back at them, and then we would call it a day's work. If observers from HQ came, we were to send word to them, and vice versa, so that a more committed, hostile posture could be presented without loss of life on either side. Paul allowed himself a moment to digest that. I see. Very interesting. And you accepted this? Not immediately. I slept on it. Or rather, I spent the night tossing and turning it over in my brain, with very little sleep involved. The next morning, at seven o'clock sharp, five French rounds flew over our heads and struck empty ground behind our trenches. Then nothing. I went to our battery commander and ordered him to stand down. Then I walked into no man's land under a white flag of my own and sat with the French commander, a colonel named Blitchin. 
They had both been on the front lines for a year and a half and had seen some bad fighting and loss of life. He confessed that he no longer had the stomach to fight unless attacked first and told me that his men were not cowards, that if we decided to continue prosecution of the war, we would face stiff resistance, but they would not be the first to break a truce. I agreed, and we have both kept our word for just over a year now. And on your casualty report, I have kept them intentionally vague. Paul laughed. Numbers are difficult things to keep vague. The lieutenant colonel laughed too. Yes, it is more accurate to say that I have lied. I have had my subordinates create brave Dieters and Johans and Gustavs from whole cloth and sent them in as our war dead on the casualty lists. Paul brushed his moustaches smooth. This is astonishing, Herr Lieutenant Colonel. Yes, I am sure it is a surprise. A surprise? That puts it mildly indeed. I fear that your men are in for some trouble when you find your new home. The lieutenant colonel looked out over the green of no man's land, with its chicory and cowslip, and sighed, resigned. We will do what we must for Germany, and be grateful for the respite we have been offered here. Paul helped the lieutenant colonel down from the ladder and back into the trenches. Sadness and resignation were in the faces of the Saxon regiment as they marched out under full packs. Paul's battle-scarred first guards tramped in from the opposite direction and took over the pristine positions. At dawn the next morning, like clockwork, five French high-explosive shells flew over no man's land and exploded behind the German lines. Paul Becker's battery returned the favour. After a brief pause... Paul blew his whistle. His assault teams, whom he had led invisibly across the field in the dark, through the long grass, the chicory and cowslip, secreting themselves at the front line of the French barbed wire awaiting dawn, leapt over the wire. They hit the sleepy Frenchmen in the trenches full bore. After ten minutes of bloodshed, the French surrendered. Their flushed faces were filled with bitter enmity as they were led back across no man's land, stunned and half-dressed, wounded and spattered with the blood of their comrades. The French colonel, Monsieur Blitchin, who had arranged the separate peace, was in tears, half of sorrow, half of rage. Paul ignored him as he was marched past, headed to spend the remainder of his days in a prisoner of war camp. It was a better circumstance than he would have faced at the hands of his own people, as was evidenced by the fate of the Saxons. Paul Becker testified at the court-martial and stayed to watch as the Saxon lieutenant colonel and his officers were lined up and shot by a firing squad. If he could have managed it, he would have taken the entire Saxon regiment out and had them put down. What they had done was pure treason, and to the lowest private they were responsible but HQ still needed men. So they were disbanded and sent to combat positions all along the line. Their shame followed them, and a close eye was kept 
to make sure they did not spread sedition among the ranks. As far as Paul knew, there were no further incidents of pacifism on the line. If there were, the perpetrators knew better than to confess their sins to an immortal Prussian warrior. But now, deep beneath the fields of battle that Paul Becker believed were his destiny to make war upon, that surety of immortality he had cultivated was faltering. As Rupert Fuchs and his sappers tried in vain to dig to the surface, Paul's certainty was fading fast, and a new belief that this cavern would be his mausoleum had begun to take hold.